Book 4, Chapter 1 of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book 4, Professor and Prophet, 1870-1900. Chapter 1, First Oxford Lectures. 1870-1871. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. On Tuesday the 8th of February 1870, the Slade Professor's Lecture Room was crowded to overflowing with members of the University, old and young, and their friends, who flocked to hear and to see the author of Modern Painters. The place was densely packed long before the time. The ante-rooms were filled with personal friends, hoping for some corner to be found them at the eleventh hour. The doors were blocked open, and besieged outside by a disappointed multitude. Professorial lectures are not usually matters of great excitement. It does not often happen that the accommodation is found inadequate. After some hasty arrangements, Sir Henry Ackland pushed his way to the table, announced that it was impossible for the lecture to be held in that place, and begged the audience to adjourn to the Sheldonian Theatre. At last, Welcomed by all Oxford, the Slade Professor appeared to deliver his inaugural address. It was not strictly academic, the way he used to come in, with a little following of familiars and assistants, exchange recognition with friends in the audience, arrange the objects he had brought to show, fling off his long-sleeved master's gown, and plunge into his discourse. His manner of delivery had not altered much since the time of the Edinburgh Lectures. He used to begin by reading, in his curious intonation, the carefully written passages of rhetoric, which usually occupied only about half of his hour. By and by he would break off, and with quite another air extemporise the liveliest interpolations, describing his diagrams or specimens, restating his arguments, reinforcing his appeal. His voice, till then artificially cadenced, suddenly became vivacious. His gestures, at first constrained, became dramatic. He used to act his subject, apparently without premeditated art, in the liveliest pantomime. He had no power of voice mimicry, and none of the ordinary gifts of the actor. A tall and slim figure, not yet shortened from its five feet ten or eleven by the habitual stoop, which ten years later brought him down to less than middle height, a stiff, blue frock coat, prominent, half-starched wristbands, and tall collars of the Gladstonian type, and the bright blue stock which everyone knows for his heraldic bearing, no rings or gewgaws, but a long, thin gold chain to his watch. Plain old English gentleman, neither fashionable bourgeois nor artistic mountebank. But he gave himself over to his subject with such unreserved intensity of imaginative power, he felt so vividly and spoke so from the heart, that he became whatever he talked about never heeding his professorial dignity, and never doubting the sympathy of his audience. Lecturing on birds, he strutted like a chuff, made himself wings like the swallow. He was for the moment a cat, when he explained, not in scorn, that engraving was the art of scratch. If it had been an affectation of theatric display, we emancipated schoolboys, as the master of university used to call us, would have seen through it at once, and scorned him but it was so evidently the expression of his intense eagerness for his subject, so palpably true to his purpose, and he so carried his hearers with him 
that one saw in the grotesque of the performance only the guarantee of sincerity. If one wanted more proof of that, there was his face, still young-looking and beardless, made for expression and sensitive to every change of emotion. A long head with enormous capacity of brain, veiled by thick, wavy hair, not affectedly lengthy, but as abundant as ever, and darkened into a deep brown without a trace of grey, and short, light whiskers growing high over his cheeks, a forehead not on the model of the heroic type, but as if the sculptor had heaped his clay in handfuls over the eyebrows and then heaped more. A big nose, aquiline and broad at the base, with great thoroughbred nostrils and the septum between them thin and deeply depressed. And there was a turn down at the corners of the mouth, and the breadth of lower lip that reminded one of his Verona griffin, half eagle, half lion. Scotch in original type, and suggesting a side to his character not all milk and roses. And under shaggy eyebrows, ever so far behind, the fiercest blue eyes, that changed with changing expression from grave to grey, from lively to severe, that riveted you, magnetised you, seemed to look through you and read your soul, and indeed, when they lighted on you, you felt you had a soul of a sort. What they really saw is a mystery. Some, who had not persuaded them to see as others see, maintained that they only saw what they looked for. Others, who had successfully deceived them, that they saw nothing. No doubt they might be deceived, but I know now that they often took far shrewder measurements of men, I do not say of women, than anybody suspected. For the inaugural course he was, so to speak, on his best behaviour, guarding against too hasty expression of individuality. He read careful orations, stating his maturest views on the general theory of art, in picked language, suited to the academic position. The little volume is not discursive or entertaining, like modern painters, and contains no pictures either with pen or pencil, but it is crammed full of thought, and of the results of thought. The Slade Professor was also expected to organise and superintend the teaching of drawing, and his first words in the first lecture expressed the hope that he would be able to introduce some serious study of art into the university, which, he thought, would be a step towards realising some of his ideals of education. He had long felt that mere talking about art was a makeshift, and that no real insight could be got into the subject without actual and practical dealing with it. He found a South Kensington school in existence at Oxford with an able master, Mr Alexander MacDonald, and though he did not entirely approve of the methods in use, tried to make the best of the materials to his hand, accepting but enlarging the scope of the system. The South Kensington method had been devised for industrial designing, primarily. Ruskin's desire was to get undergraduates to take up a wider subject, to familiarise themselves with the technical excellences of the great masters, to study nature and the different processes of art, drawing, painting, and some forms of decorative work, such as, in a special goldsmith's work, out of which the Florentine school had sprung. He did not wish to train artists, but, as before in the Working Men's College, to cultivate the habit of mind that looks at nature and life, not analytically as science does, but for the sake of external aspect and expression. By these means he hoped to breed a race of judicious patrons and critics, the best service any man can render to the cause of art. And so he got together a mass of examples in addition to the Turners which he had already given to the university galleries. He placed in the school a few pictures by Tintoret, 
some drawings by Rossetti, Holman Hunt and Burne Jones, and a great number of fine casts and engravings. He arranged a series of studies by himself and others as copies, fitted, like the Turners in the National Gallery, with sliding frames in cabinets for convenient reference and removal. After spending most of his first Lent term in this work, he went home for a month to prepare a catalogue, which was published the same year, the school not being finally opened until October 1871. During these first visits to Oxford, he was the guest of Sir Henry Ackland. On April 29th, 1871, Professor Ruskin, already honorary student of Christchurch, was elected to an honorary fellowship at Corpus and enabled to occupy rooms vacated by the Reverend Henry Furneaux, who gave up his fellowship on marrying Mr. Arthur Seven's twin sister. After this work well begun, he went abroad for a vacation tour with a party of friends, as in 1866. Lady Trevelyan's sister, Mrs. Hilliard, to chaperone the same young ladies and three servants with them. They started on April the 27th, stayed a while at Meurice's to see Paris, and at Geneva to go up the Salève twice in bitter black east wind. Then across the Simplon to Milan. After a month at Venice and Verona, where he recurred to his scheme against inundation, then ridiculed by Punch, but afterwards taken up seriously by the Italians, they went to Florence and met Professor Norton. In the end of June they turned homewards by Pisa and Lucca, Milan and Coma, and went to visit their friend Marie of the Giesbach. At the Giesbach they spent a fortnight, enjoying the July weather and glorious walks, in the middle of which war was suddenly declared between Germany and France. The summons of their German waiter to join his regiment brought the news home to them, as such personal examples do, more than columns of newspaper print, and as hostilities were rapidly beginning, Ruskin, with the gloomiest forebodings for the beautiful country he loved, took his party home straight across France, before the ways should be closed. August was a month of feverish suspense to everybody, to no one more than Ruskin, who watched the progress of the armies while he worked day by day at the British Museum, preparing lectures for next term. This was the course on Greek relief sculpture, published as Aratra Pentelici. It was a happy thought to illustrate his subject from coins rather than from disputed and mutilated fragments, and he worked into it his revised theory of the origin of art, not Schiller's nor Herbert Spencer's, and yet akin to theirs of the Spieltrieb, involving the notion of doll play, man as a child recreating himself in a double sense, imitating the creation of the world and really creating a sort of secondary life in his art, to play with or to worship. In the last lecture of the series, published separately, the professor compared, as the outcome of classic art in Renaissance times, Michelangelo and the Tintoret, greatly to the disadvantage of Michelangelo. This heresy against a popular creed served as text for some severe criticism, but as he said in a prefactory note to the pamphlet, readers must observe that its business is only to point out what is to be blamed in Michelangelo, and that it assumes the fact of his power to be generally known and he referred to Mr. Terwitt's Lectures on Christian Art for the opposite side of the question. Meanwhile, the war was raging. Ruskin was asked by his friends to raise his voice against the ravage of France, but he replied that it was inevitable. At last, in October, he read how Rosa Bonheur and Edouard Freire had been permitted to pass through the German lines, and next day came the news of the bombardment of Strasbourg, with anticipations 
of the destruction of the cathedral, library, and picture galleries, foretelling, as it seemed, the more terrible and irreparable ruin of the treasure-houses of art in Paris. His heart was with the French, and he broke silence in the bitterness of his spirit, upbraiding their disorder and showing how the German success was the victory of one of the truest monarchies and schools of honour and obedience yet organised under heaven. He hoped that Germany, now that she had shown her power, would draw and demand no indemnity. But that was too much to ask. Before long, Paris itself became the scene of action, and in January 1871 was besieged and bombarded. So much of Ruskin's work and affection had been given to French Gothic that he could not endure to think of his beloved Saint-Chapelle as being actually under fire, to say nothing of the horror of human suffering in a siege. He joined Cardinal, then Archbishop Manning, Professor Huxley, Sir John Lubbock, and James Knowles in forming a Paris food fund, which shortly united with the Lord Mayor's Committee for the general relief of the besieged. The day after writing on the Saint-Chapelle, he attended the meeting of the Mansion House and gave a subscription of £50. He followed events anxiously through the storm of the Commune and its fearful ending, angered at the fratricide and anarchy which no Mansion House help could avert or repair. It was no time for talking on art, he felt. Instead of the full course, he could only manage three lectures on landscape, and these not so completely prepared as to make them ready for printing. Before Christmas, he had been once more to Woolwich, where Colonel Brackenbury invited him to address the cadets at the prize-giving of the Science and Art Department, December thirteenth, 1870, in which the Reverend W. Kingsley, an old friend of Ruskin's and of Turner's, was one of the masters. Two of the lectures of the Crown of Wild Olive had been given there, with more than usual animation, and enthusiastically received by crowded and distinguished audiences, among whom was Prince Arthur, the Duke of Connaught, then the Royal Military Academy. This time it was the story of Arachne, an address on education and aims in life, opening with reminiscences of his own childhood, and pleasantly telling the Greek myths of the spider and the ant, with interpretations for the times. In the three lectures on landscape, given January the 20th, February the 9th and 23rd, 1871, he dwelt on the necessity of human and historic interest in scenery, and compared Greek solidity and veracity with Gothic spirituality and mendacity, Greek chiaroscuro and tranquil activity with Gothic colour and passionate rest. Botticelli's nativity, now in the National Gallery, was then being shown at the Old Masters exhibition, and Ruskin took it, along with the works of Chima, as a type of one form of Greek art. In April 1871, his cousin, Miss Agnew, who had been seven years at Denmark Hill, was married to Mr. Arthur Seven. Ruskin, who had added to his other work the additional labour of Fors Clavigera, went for a summer's change to Matlock. July opened with cold, dry, dark weather, dangerous for out-of-door sketching. One morning early, for he was always an early riser, he took a chill while painting a spray of wild roses before breakfast, the drawing now in the Oxford schools. He was already overworked, and it ended in a severe attack of internal inflammation, which nearly cost him his life. He was a difficult patient to deal with. The local practitioner who attended him used to tell how he refused remedies, and in the height of the disease asked what would be worst for him. He took it, and to everybody's surprise, recovered. During the illness at Matlock, his thoughts reverted to the old Itiriad times of forty years before, 
when he had travelled with his parents and cousin mary from that same new bath hotel where he was now lying to the lakes and again he wearied for the heights that look adown upon the dale the crags are lone on coniston if he could only lie down there he said he should get well again he had not fully recovered before he heard that w j linton the poet and wood engraver wished to sell a house and land at the very place one thousand five hundred pounds and it could be his without question asked he bought it at once and as it would be impossible to lecture at oxford so soon after his illness he set off before the middle of september with his friends the hilliards to visit his new possession they found a rough cast country cottage old damp decayed smoky chimneyed and rat riddled but five acres of rock and moor and streamlet and he wrote i think the finest view i know in cumberland or lancashire with the sunset visible over the same the spot was not even then without its associations gerald massey the poet linton and his wife mrs lynn linton the novelist dr g w kitchen dean of durham had lived and worked there and linton had adorned it outside with revolutionary mottoes god and the people and so on it had been a favourite point of view of wordsworth's his seat was pointed out in the grounds tennyson had lived for a while close by his seat too was on the hill above lane head but the cottage needed thorough repair and that cost more than rebuilding not to speak of the additions of later years which have ended by making it into a mansion surrounded by a hamlet and there was the furnishing for denmark hill where his mother lived was still to be headquarters ruskin gave carte blanche to the london upholsterer with whom he had been accustomed to deal and such expensive articles were sent that when he came down for a month next autumn he reckoned that all included his country cottage had cost him not less than four thousand pounds but he was not the man to spend on himself without sharing his wealth with others on november the twenty-second convocation accepted a gift from the slave professor of five thousand pounds to endow a mastership of drawing at oxford in addition to the pictures and copies placed in the schools he had set up a relative in business with fifteen thousand pounds which was unfortunately lost and at christmas he gave seven thousand pounds the tithe of his remaining capital to the st george's fund of which more hereafter on november the twenty-third he was elected lord rector of st andrew's university by eighty-six votes against seventy-nine for lord lytton after the election it was discovered that by the scottish universities act of eighteen fifty-eight no one holding a professorship at a british university was eligible professor ruskin was disqualified and gave no address and lord neves was chosen in his place mrs ruskin was now ninety years of age her sight was nearly gone but she still retained her powers of mind and ruled with severe kindliness her household and her son her old servant anne had died in march and had nursed john ruskin as a baby and had lived with the family ever since devoted to them and ready for any disagreeable task so that she was never quite in her glory Priterita says unless some of us were ill she had also some parallel speciality for saying disagreeable things and might be relied upon to give the extremely darkest view of any subject before proceeding to ameliorative action upon it and she had a very creditable and republican aversion to doing immediately or in set terms as she was bid so that when my mother and she got all together and my mother became very imperative and particular about having her teacup set on one side of her little round table anne would observantly and punctiliously put it always on the other 
which caused my mother to state to me every morning after breakfast, gravely, that if ever a woman in this world was possessed by the devil, Anne was that woman. But this gloomy Calvinism was tempered with a benevolence quite as uncommon. It was from his parents that Ruskin learned never to turn off a servant, and the Denmark Hill household was as easy-going as the legendary baronial retinue of the good old times. A young friend asked Mrs. Ruskin, in a moment of indiscretion, what such a one of the ancient maids did, for there were several without apparent occupation about the house. Mrs. Ruskin drew herself up and said, She, my dear, puts out the dessert. And yet, in her blindness, she could read character unhesitatingly. That was, no doubt, why people feared her. When Mr. Secretary Howell, in the days when he was still the oracle of the Ruskin-Rossetti circle, had been regaling them with his wonderful tales, after dinner she would throw her netting down and say, How can you two sit there and listen to such a pack of lies? She objected strongly, in these later years, to the theatre, and when sometimes her son would wish to take a party into town to see the last new piece, her permission had to be asked and was not readily granted, unless to Miss Agnew who was the ambassadress in such affairs of diplomacy. But while disapproving of some of his worldly ways, and convinced that she had too much indulged his childhood, the old lady loved him with all the intensity of the strange, fierce, lioness nature which only one or two had ever had a glimpse of. And when, December the 5th, 1871, she died, trusting to see her husband again, not to be near him, not to be so high in heaven, but content if she might only see him, she said. Her son was left with a surprising sense of loneliness. He had loved her truly, obeyed her strictly, and tended her faithfully, and even yet hardly realised how much she had been to him. He buried her in his father's grave, and wrote upon it, Here beside my father's body I have laid my mother's. Nor was dearer earth ever returned to earth, nor purer life recorded in heaven. End of Book 4, Chapter 1 Recording by Graham Arrowsmith